I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to RAIN's Essential Geopolitics podcast. My name is Emma Kami, and today I'll be speaking with RAIN's Global Economy Analyst, Marcus Yeager, about the current state of various economies around the world. Hi, Marcus. How are you? Hey, Emma. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. To get us started, can you explain what the outlook is for U.S., European, and Japanese economic growth and monetary policy in the near and long-term future? Yeah, sure. So I would say the outlook is relatively constructive, but there are important differences. The U.S. economy has entered 2024 with like significant economic momentum, certainly much, much stronger momentum than, than Europe and Japan. In fact, Japan entered into a technical recession in the fourth quarter of last year. And uh, Europe is also not doing too well. That's still related to the Ukraine crisis. But also, in particular, the German economy is, is not doing very well. So economic growth there is also fairly limited. But the United States has been doing uh, quite well in the past couple of years coming out of COVID. In fact, it's done far, far better than, than both Europe and Japan. So I would expect this to broadly continue. There's no reason, there's not much indication in like, near-term indicators that the U.S. economy is going to turn south. There are some signs that the labor market might be weakening, but you know there's a lot of volatility uh, in, in high-frequency data. Overall, I think the outlook is fairly constructive for the U.S., which doesn't mean that we'll get the same level of economic growth we had last year. But broadly speaking, I'd expect the U.S. economy to grow at least twice as fast as the European and the Japanese economies. And I think the downside risks are also greater in, in, in Japan and in Europe. So um, we'll basically see a continued sort of, if not divergence, a continued growth differential that characterizes the U.S. on the one hand and Japan and Europe on the, on the other hand. Um, so so this, this then also has implications for monetary policy. Um, so all three economies came out of COVID and experienced a significant increase in inflation, which forced the Europeans and the Americans or the, the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank to raise rates quite aggressively. But this happened in the context of continued high economic growth in the US and lower economic growth in Europe. Now that we're in this dis disinflationary environment where, growth, where, where price growth has slowed quite dramatically and it's gradually moving towards the 2% targets in, in, the, in the US and in Europe, both economies have, or both central banks, I should say, have enough scope to lower interest rates. So we will probably be seeing both, both the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank cut interest rates towards the middle of this year, so basically over the next quarter. Um, and quite possibly this will extend into the third and fourth quarter. Much will depend on how the economy is doing in the near term. I'm more confident about the European Central Bank cutting rates because, as I mentioned, growth is lower there. Unemployment has also crept up a little more than in the U.S. So overall, I would expect the ECB to uh, cut interest rates, more likely ECB cuts than the Federal Reserve. But even in the case of the U.S., there's an expectation that interest rates will, will come down. 
Um, now, quickly on Japan, that's an interesting case. Uh, Japan has had also seen a spike in inflation, but they started with very, very low interest rates, and they have been somewhat reluctant to raise interest rates. Now, I don't want to get into the details of like how Japanese monetary policy is conducted, but they had to reform their regimes, but remarkably, the policy rate in Japan is still negative. And so the question now is, Will they actually raise rates in a context where Japanese inflation is slowing as well? Uh, and here my view is that I think they might raise rates very, very slightly, not so much because they're worried about inflation, but just because they want to normalize the economic, their monetary policy regime. So we might see a relatively inconsequential increase in Japanese interest rates over the next quarter uh, or two. Um, just quickly what this then also, uh, what implication this has, if the, Europeans, the European Central Bank and the American Central Bank cut interest rates roughly at the same uh, pace, then I wouldn't necessarily expect the dollar to be much weaker or much stronger against the euro. But overall, declining interest rates in the developed markets then has an impact on many emerging markets. And we might have a chance to talk about this later in the sense that a weaker euro and a weaker dollar is generally good news for a lot of emerging market economies not least because their financing costs decline as well. So that's sort of probably in a nutshell what the outlook is. We're going into, I think, the first and second quarter of this year with a fair amount of momentum in the US. Yes, there's some downside risks, but overall the US economy is doing quite well. Europe is not doing so well, and I think the downside risks are greater, but overall we're expecting, at least in the US and in Europe, um, further, further um, interest rate cuts in the first and second quarter. And could you speak a bit to China's economy, how it's performing, and um, what you make of increasing concerns about its longer-term growth trajectory? Yeah, so I think the outlook in China is even more uncertain. In part, that's because the economy is growing faster. So in a sense, there's more upside and downside risks if you want to measure it in basis points. But also, quite frankly, because China's economy is undergoing a massive transformation, a massive change in terms of how economic growth is generated. Up until recently, like two, three years ago, the Chinese economy was heavily reliant on infrastructure and real estate investment. And the Chinese authority decided that this was too risky. And in my, in my view, uh, they, they were right about this. So they've been trying to shrink the sector. And just coming out of COVID, what this meant is that the real estate sector, a major driver of economic growth, it was sort of beginning to, to, to stutter and, and weakened, um, which lowered really overall economic growth in, in China. And so this entire growth model that very heavily depends on real estate economic, uh, on, on, the, on the real estate sector is in question now. And the question going forward is, where will economic growth come from? And more importantly, what will the Chinese authorities do to increase or sustain economic growth? So I think here, the, the question is still, we, we don't know what the answer is as to how this will end, but I'm fairly confident to predict that over the medium term, economic growth in China will be substantially lower than it was in the past five to 10 years. This is just in partly owed to the fact that the, uh, the Chinese growth model needs to change, and that change will necessitate lower economic growth. The question in the near term is how quickly this change can be brought about and how much economic growth will suffer in the short run. And this, in turn, will heavily depend on what the Chinese authorities decide to do. Their choice is essentially, should they stimulate the economy in the short run, and to what extent, and how, how, how aggressively? Or should they just let the adjustment take place and accept lower economic growth, and potentially also lower inflation or even deflation? 
And that's a difficult choice because deflation itself can be very, very risky for an economy. So the Chinese authorities have to have to sort of they have to wander on this sort of very narrow path between over they don't want to overstimulate the economy and go back to the old model, which creates long-term financial risks. But they also don't want to do too little in the short run because there's a risk of deflation and potentially even sort of a Japan style uh, Japan style stagnation, which uh, really characterized Japan or has characterized Japan in the past 30 years. So uh, in a nutshell, the, the outlook is uncertain. I, my view is that overall, the authorities will do what needs doing to maintain economic growth at like 4 to 5%. But it's also worth pointing out that it's significantly lower than what we saw, say, five years ago in pre-COVID. And really, the risk is to the downside and to the upside, which is why I'm referring to this uncertainty, because I think it's far less, it's far less certain where, where economic growth will be say, one or one and a half years from now. If I put my own, my own money um, on it, I would say growth will be between 4 and 5% this year, but will trend, will trend lower perhaps to around 4% over the next two to three years. That's really interesting, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, could you also take kind of a larger, I guess, view on the outlook for emerging and developing economies um, throughout this time period and how maybe uh, the economies that you've talked about earlier in this podcast might influence their growth? Yeah, sure. So I think the best way to think about growth in the emerging and developing economies is what's happening to global growth, or more specifically, what, what, what is happening to US, Chinese, and European growth. So if these countries grow rapidly, that usually has a favorable impact on growth in emerging and developing economies. The second question is one of interest rates. If interest rates are high, all other things equal, that means these countries have a tougher time attracting capital flows and investments. So that's a negative. And then a strong dollar is typically also negative from a financial point of view, even though theoretically it allows them to export more. So extending that model to, and well, one thing I should mention is also commodity prices. To the extent that many developing economies depend on commodity exports, rising commodity prices can actually uh, help stimulate exports and economic growth. So extrapolating this or applying that framework to the next year or two, we are constructive on the global growth outlook. It's not going to be like exuberant. That's going to be OK. I just mentioned the US is doing OK. Europe is a little weaker, Japan's a little weaker, but overall we're doing okay global growth-wise. So this is not going to be a negative for the emerging markets and the developing economies. Interest rates will decline, so this should really push more capital into the emerging and developing economies, which will allow them to finance more investment, to lower the interest serving costs, the servicing costs, and to stimulate economic growth to the extent that it allows the freeing up of fiscal resources uh, as well. On the commodity side, it's a mixed picture. We'll have to see exactly where commodity prices are going. But also, potentially, this combination of, of low interest rates and a weaker dollar should support these economies. And we've seen some of this, for example, in the past couple of months, where some African economies that are highly indebted uh, and they didn't have access to international capital markets. They were just able to issue international bonds. So that's kind of a bellwether for the ability of, of particularly developing economies, but also emerging economies, to tap international markets and to attract investment and stimulate longer-term economic growth. So from that perspective, I think uh, one can be somewhat constructive as far as economic growth is concerned. 
and perhaps more than constructive as far as capital and financial assets are concerned. Because if you say, for example, sit in the US and you're, 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 you're raising money in US dollars, the financing costs will come down and you're still benefiting from a significant what's called carry or spread vis-a-vis -vis emerging market assets, which carry much higher interest rates. So this is where I think capital will flow and this would overall benefit these economies. But I should probably also say this is a generalization. A lot depends on individual countries. Uh, as, as, as our listeners probably know, a lot of countries are in a situation where they have defaulted on their debt. They still have high debt levels. So there's still a lot of challenges. But really from a macro point of view, as far as global macro is concerned, I think now there is less uncertainty about the global outlook. There's less uncertainty about global interest rates. And therefore, there's greater certainty about what the uh, global macroeconomic conditions are for emerging and developing economies. So overall, I would say we're more constructive on emerging and developing economies than we were, say, 12 months ago. Well, thank you so much, Marcus, for the overview. Um, pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Emma. You can read more of Marcus's analyses by subscribing to a RAIN Risk Intelligence product. Our suite of products and solutions allow clients to access the insights and analyses they need to make more informed decisions. You can sign up or learn more at our website, rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emma Kami. Thanks for listening.